0: the beatitudes this morning the pursuit of happiness we're going back to that series again and we're going to be talking about verse nine now if you remember before we really jump into this i just want to plant this seed into your brains here the beatitudes divide into into two different sections one is the path to salvation and the other is how you live after as a follower of Jesus, okay? There's two different pieces here. Now, we've moved recently into the how followers of Jesus live section. But don't forget everything that we've talked about before this point. Remember, there's two major sections. There's the how to find Jesus, how to become a follower of Jesus, and then now that you are His, how do you live? And look with me there at verse 9, and you're going to see where we're picking up today. Verse 9 is probably um, one of the most common And also, I would say, probably one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses, because we we have a lot of of wrong definitions because we're using worldly definitions to define these terms as opposed to to what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches on them. So today we're going to get underneath some things and hopefully draw this out a little bit farther. But verse 9, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the what? The peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called what? Now, some of your translations are going to say the word children there. And I need to tell you straight up, that is a, a wrong translation. It's not children, okay? It's sons. It's distinctly sons. And that matters. That matters a lot. And we're going to get to that more later. But it's not children. It's not gender neutral. It's sons. And we're going to understand more about why that's important. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called Sons of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. That you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would instruct us in submission to your word. And that we would receive it with joy. That correction would not foster bitterness in our hearts, but rather it would tie us to you even firmer. Father, forgive us for the times that we have fled Your Word. Forgive us for the times that we have neglected the study of Your Word. And now as we come and sit beneath it to be instructed by it, I pray that we would receive it with joy. Father, teach us, please, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, for those of you that are word study nerds, and I know some of y'all are, you you got your your word study apps on your Bible and you like to look up the definitions of words and the Greek words and all those different things. One of the things that you're going to find immediately about today is that it's tricky. If you jump into this beatitude and start taking it apart word by word, you're going to hit a very particular stumbling block along the way. And that's that word peacemakers. Just look at that word with me there. First, I want you to notice that That's not even really an English word, okay? But we're doing the best that we can in translating one language into another. But peacemaker is not a a very common English word. Like, It's not something that we use every single day. I mean, if you watch Hunger Games, there's the peacekeepers, but those are the bad guys, okay? And now we're talking about this idea of peacemaking, being a peacemaker. And in fact, if you pull your little Greek tools out and you tap that word and you see where else it appears in the New Testament, guess how many other times you're going to find it? None. This is it. This is the only time this word shows up in all of the New Testament. So we have to be very careful in the way that we're defining it, which means primarily what? That we're going to go to all of the Bible to figure out exactly what a peacemaker is. you got to do some work. you got to do some digging. And I've been doing some work for the past several days to try and pull out exactly what's going on here. Because if we're going to be called a son of God, then we want to know what we need to do in order to be called a son of God, right? And so that means that we don't just read this word peacemaker and say, oh, well, they make peace. And then we move on from it. We need to know what it means to make peace. We need to know what peace is. And we need to know what it means to be a a son of God. But before we even get to all of that, Let's just real fast go back and remember exactly where we are in all of the Beatitudes, okay? We're in the part now where Jesus is instructing His disciples on how they should live, right? Not on what it means to come to Him, the steps in order to come to Jesus. Those were the first several Beatitudes. Now we're in the part where Jesus is teaching us what to do, how to live, He did the path to salvation and sanctification earlier. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember, what is the poor in spirit? They're they're bankrupt. They don't have anywhere else to go except to who? Except to Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Why are they mourning? They're mourning over their sin. And their brokenness, they they know they have nowhere else to go. They mourn over their sin. The only option they have is Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Why do they inherit the earth? Because they serve the Lord and God's people receive what as their reward? The earth, all of it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they'll get it. And so much more. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and what will be added to you? All these things, right the earth itself so there's the there 's the path to salvation and sanctification through Christ, but now we 're into the qualities of those who belong to christ that 's the context here how do god 's people act well they're they 're merciful we got that one a few weeks ago do you remember that they're they 're merciful, they are pure in heart, and they are peacemakers now one of the things that we 've talked about over and over again about is about how these are part of God's communicable attributes. y'all remember that? We talked about that. God's communicable attributes, which means it is part of the things that God's people share in common with God. That beeping happens like every Sunday in the middle of my service. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Thank you guys for taking care of that. Good night. The idea of, of being merciful The the idea of being pure in heart and and being a peacemaker, those are part of of God's communicable attributes that he shares with with his followers, with his people. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Do you remember? They shall be called, pull that verse up, sons of God. Now let's Let's go in deep on your Bible translations real quick because we we need to make sure that we're fleshing this all the way through as best we possibly can. Uh, Some of your Bible translations say children. They shall be called children of God and not sons of God. And that is flat out wrong. That's not just a poor translation, but that's a translation that will actually cost you the meaning of what's really going on in the text. Why? Because in these times when this is written down, who inherits from the Father? The son does. Do you see? It's a son who is an heir. Because in this context, a son is the one who receives the inheritance. And as a result, these are not just kids, but they are sons of God. They're not just children of God, but they are sons of God. Well, that that brings us to some other questions that I think are important for us to ask. Okay? Which is, why would some translations shy away from from a proper understanding of that concept, if it was only the sons who actually received the inheritance, who received the charge and carried forth the legacy of the father. Why would we lose all of that and mistranslate this as the word children? Children isn't even an option of the word that's present here. It has to be sons. It must be sons. Why would they do that? Well, because the Bible is distinctly patriarchal in its teaching. I'm going to say that again. The Bible is distinctly patriarchal in its teaching. Who is qualified to be a pastor based on the biblical text that we find in the Old and New Testament? Men are. And not just any man, but a man who does what well? He manages his household well. He manages his family well. He has good fruits in so far as that. And that would qualify him, if he is a faithful also follower of Jesus, that would qualify him to potentially become a minister. It's God the what? Father. Not God the gender-neutral being. And God has only ever intentionally defined Himself as distinctly male. And why would that matter? Because Jesus, born a man... Son of God, the Father, receives the inheritance and has a what? A bride. His church. Do you see? See, the teachings of the Bible are distinctly... I haven't even gotten into the fun stuff yet. They're distinctly patriarchal. Families are governed ultimately by who? The Father. That's taught over and over and over again in the Scriptures. The Father is the head of the house. And the only reason... To translate that word from sons to children is because you're cow into the culture. That's it. They're afraid of the patriarchal tones of scripture. Run away from those guys. The, the Bible is distinctly patriarchal. Patriarchy is like a, this super simple word. I know we have fight the patriarchy, down with the patriarchy. But all that means, a patriarchy literally defined, just means father rule. That's it. And we live in South Louisiana. And so there's not a lot of debate on that particular issue here. We still have that culturally held, by and large. It's, we're losing it in some spheres, but by and large, culturally, we kind of hold on to that. We understand dad's in charge. Father rule. Patriarchy reigns supreme in southwest Louisiana. Now, just like any form of leadership, it can be abused. Amen? And that's why God gives us very specific ways to appeal against abusive authority and abusive power. And if that happens, then we should operate through His mechanisms. We should bring witnesses. We should bring charges. We should utilize the church courts. We should do all of those things. And if you're under any form of abuse inside of your family, physical abuse, where a father is is abusing his children or abusing his wife, then you should call the police. Did you hear me? Call the cops. Because that's their job. The police officers are given the the sword by God Himself in order to execute judgment and, and protect. So let them do their job. But I don't want to get too distracted in the weeds here. The Bible teaches patriarchy. The father is the head of the family and he leads the family. And not only is he the head of the family and he leads the family, but the father lays down his life for his family, right? If you go go find a bachelor, well, I don't mean literally right now, but okay, let's just think of bachelors for a moment, okay? I would wager nine times out of ten, a bachelor before he's married and has children and all of those things would put a mattress on the floor and a cardboard box upside down next to it with a TV in one room and live his whole life and be just fine. <laughs> That's it. That is a man's preference. <laughs> I remember whenever my wife and I first got married, and I moved in a couple of months early to the, the two-bedroom apartment that we were going to be moving into together after we were married because you know, I had to secure the lease and all that stuff. So I moved in, and I remember I put my futon in the living room, with no form of cooking instruments. I don't even know that I had plates at the time, to be completely honest. And there was a TV. And I just lived there for like two months. That was how I lived. And I was fine. I was fine. I didn't need anything else. But whenever you get married, gentlemen, what does your wife do? She cultivates a culture, doesn't she? You see, this is why men don't really like cultivate culture that well. They don't refine culture that well. Because, you know, mattress on the floor, upside-down box for a night table, and TV in the corner. Like, that's it. That We're done. Men, men are done. But you put a woman in the house, and now it actually looks like somebody lives there for the first time. And things happen like vacuuming. Wow! <laughs> you know? I don't think I vacuumed the floor in my dorm for the whole year that I lived there. You know, like... Some of y'all are real worried about me right now, but all the men in the room are like, yeah, amen, that's about right. We know. This is normal. But that's not necessarily the man's preference. Do you get what I'm getting after here? But he lays down his life because he knows that he needs a helper. You see? This is why in Genesis, whenever God gives Adam Eve, he gives him Eve from his own flesh to fulfill the mission that God had given to Adam. Do you see what I'm saying? In in other words, Eve was given to Adam as a helper to execute the mission that God had given him to do. Eve didn't have her own mission over here by herself. They worked together and moved together in the same direction. And the man's responsibility, whenever he marries this culture-refining, building, awesome machine, is he protects and provides and lays down his life for her and for the children that they're going to be bringing forward to send out in the world to go even farther. Do you see? The, the very etymology, the very origin of the word husband means house bound. That's where that word comes from. It, it means that he's bound to his home. He's, he's literally bound to his wife. Bound to, That's a fierce loyalty. I, I remember whenever I, I held my firstborn daughter for the first time. And I thought, oh, I could kill somebody. I forgot that. I didn't know. There's, a, there's this thing that comes oh, God has designed these things to work in a certain way. Yes, a father is the head. Absolutely. Patriarchy rule is the standard. But he sacrifices and lays down his life and is bound to his house. The Bible is distinctly patriarchal. God is father. Men are pastors. Pastors are qualified by being good husbands and good fathers. Sons are heirs in the Bible, which is why sons to this day carry their family name forward, not daughters, because daughters are going in to join the mission. Are you all listening? This is important. Daughters are going in to join the mission of the man whom they are leaving and cleaving to. Do you follow with me? They're they're moving in a direction together. This is why a a daughter loses her last name and adopts the name traditionally of the man that she's marrying. That's why, by and large, a rebellion against this standard is actually a rebellion against the patriarchy rule. Okay? It's ultimately a rebellion against God. Now, I'm not saying anybody who decided to not take names is the devil. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think it's important to understand what's really going on underneath all of that. Are you all following with me? Patriarchy rule is there in the scriptures. And that's why in the, my family and I were reading through um, the Old Testament right now, and we just got into uh, Exodus, and we just finished the 10th the, the plague. We you all remember what the 10th plague was? Where all the, the firstborn sons were killed, right? And that's why it's significant that that's the final plague that God brings on Egypt. The killing of the firstborn sons. Because what's God really saying He's doing to Egypt in that moment? he's saying i'm cutting off your legacy that's what he's really doing he's saying you're done here he's destroyed the land he's destroyed their agriculture he's given them all kinds of problems that they they might could still recover from egypt might still make it through they might be able to get to the other side and then the final plague that god sends is the destruction of their firstborn sons because it's god saying you're done here i'm ending your legacy Y'all, y'all understand what I'm getting at here? So to replace the word children, to re- replace the word sons with children instead is a slow play, demonic attack. Now slow, if you were at Sunday school this morning, we talked about this a little bit. About a slow play. Okay? And what's a, what's a slow play? A slow play is where the devil knows that he's immortal and he's got time. He can take 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, or 280 years if he wants to, and slowly work through and draw people into temptation and sin and death and destruction. That's the pattern of if you've read the Lord of the Rings books. that's that's the, the setup of the big bad Sauron. He took thousands of years to get where he was before he was ready to make his play and destroy all of mankind. He didn't succeed, spoiler alert. You can go watch the movies later. But to replace... Sons with children is an attack. And you need to be aware of it. Sons received the inheritance. Eve was created to support Adam's mission. We said all of this already. And those who are peacemakers are sons. Listen to me. Are you listening? This is, here's the important part. Those who are peacemakers are sons, even if they're not sons. Did you catch that? Those who are peacemakers are sons in the fullest sense of the word, even if they're not sons. It's a radical statement, isn't it? That means that women and men have a literal inheritance from Jesus and will rule and reign for all eternity. In the new heavens and the new... Did you see that? You see, so if you take the word sons out and just replace it with children, you destroy all of that. You lose all of that. You lose all of the importance and the significance of that statement. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, whether or not they are sons. That's a huge statement. So if you are a peacemaker, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are his, then you are regarded as a son. And you have all the privileges therein. You are an heir. And not just an heir, but you are an heir to one of the greatest things, to the greatest thing you could ever possibly be an heir to. And that is the entire earth to rule and reign with Christ for the rest of eternity. Because you are bought by the blood of the Son and you receive Sonship. That's radically good news. And this is all true if what you are a peacemaker. All right, now we go back. <laughs> okay? We understand the significance of why it needs to be Son. we understand what a son receives. But now, now we get to that tricky word. Now we get to that one that we're gonna have to have to go through some. We're gonna have to go through some Bible here to get really what we, we need to understand, the depths of what we need to understand. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, and hopefully you're doing so, if you're not engaged in a Bible reading plan, I know it's the new year. We've started ours some time ago, but you can just jump right in, in the middle of it. Okay, If you want to jump in on a Bible reading plan, the slides still run at the beginning of the service. You can pop a little QR code, jump into our group, and just start where we are today. Just start, okay? It's great for you. Go through the Bible in a year. But if you've read the Bible to cover to cover, and many of you have, one of the things that you'll realize, one of the things that you'll... That's <laughs> a minor earthquake just happened. <laughs> I've just fallen all over the place. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Listen, if you've read the Bible to cover, cover to cover, one of the things that you're realizing pretty quickly is that peace is a major theme throughout the Scriptures. Now, I'm just, I'm just going to pull it out in one particular place. Well, a couple of places. But as we talk through it, I want you to be thinking through this particular theme now in the in the very beginning god made everything and it and it culminates in a, in a day of rest in the in the beginning the world had peace full full and complete rest but but let's ask the question what made it peaceful what made it peaceful what what caused the world there was still work to do but the work wasn't toilsome yet right And there was still a mission to accomplish, but there wasn't this daunting fear over the mission, right? There was was still things to do, a mission to accomplish, still work to do, but the world had peace, a full and complete rest. How? Well, because there was no sin. So that's easy. Let's get rid of sin and then we'll all have peace. (laughs) That's how we make peace. Well, we, I got some bad news. We can't do that. <laughs> There's going to be sin. But if you continue to follow the theme of peace throughout the rest of the scriptures, you're going to notice something over time. Now, I want to go to Leviticus chapter 26. So you, go ahead and turn there with me if you have Bibles or phones or anything. We're not going to have this up on the screen. So if you want to follow along, you're going to need to turn there. And I'm reading out of the English standard, just so you, if you want to read the same version as me. Um, Leviticus chapter 26 gives us this really interesting moment where but we start to flesh out a lot more exactly what peace is and what it means look at look at verses 3 through 6 Leviticus chapter 26 verses 3 through 6 i'm going to read you'll follow along if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them then i will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. What he's saying is your, your fields will always be fruitful. He's like, there's never going to be a season where your fields aren't being fruitful because they didn't have refrigerators and they didn't have a ton of preservation methods. So they needed their fields fruitful all the time so they could be able to eat all the time. From the, from the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last the time of sowing and, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give, it's right there, look at verse 6. I will give what? Peace. I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Peace. Peace. But what does peace go with? What does peace run alongside of? Did you see it? Go back to the beginning at verse 3. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. He says it very clearly that peace is directly connected with what? With obedience. Right? With following the Lord's command. Peace, rest, is directly connected with obedience. Now that that fits the same theme that we see from the beginning of creation, isn't it? Because at creation, why is there peace? Because there's no... Sin. There's no disobedience, in other words. So peace exists, and it's not until after sin enters the world that now work becomes toilsome, that now death must... they they have to live in fear of it, that now that childbearing brings forth pain. All those things happen as a result of sin coming in. The loss of peace is because of disobedience, because of sin. But God promises right there at the beginning of Leviticus 26 that if we obey Him that He will give us peace. You see that? Now, 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 okay, got it. What if there is no obedience? Okay, skip down to verse 27. Just blah, 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 skip all the way down to verse 27. What if there is no obedience? Okay, verse 27. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, that, that, make, that wakes you up real quick, doesn't it? Whenever a verse like that pops in the Bible. Okay, I'm listening. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. Okay, what does that sound like? No peace, right? If you will not obey me, then I will walk contrary. To, I will walk against you. I will be against you. Not just a little bit, but God says He will be against us in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Now read the rest of these verses and be sobered. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the death body, dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. In other words, I will not receive your worship is what God is saying there. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be waste. But if you keep reading in this section, we're not going to go through it right now. I'll let you study this out on your own. If you keep reading in this section, there's a very interesting moment that happens. Because God says... He will remove the people of Israel, okay? And then He will give the land, do you remember what? He will give the land rest. In other words, He will remove the disobedience and the peace will return. Isn't that interesting? Do you all remember back in 2020? Some of you all have blocked this mentally from your mind. That's okay. Let's journey back there safely together. It's going to be all right. No trauma is going to happen here. But do you remember back in 2020, whenever the uh, Black Lives Matter riots started? Do you remember those? And cities were burning and all kinds of stuff was going on all, all over the country. And they had a chant that they would say. Do you remember what the chant was during the, during the marches? They said, no justice, what? No peace. They were on something. Now, they had the complete wrong definition of justice. And they had the complete wrong definition of peace. But you see, innately inside of our hearts, we know that's true. And the Bible confirms it again and again and again. If there is no justice, how could you have peace? And when we say justice, we mean the justice of God. The Bible, the biblical model of justice. And if you want to, we're starting actually a Sunday school series on biblical justice. And if you want to come, the first class is next week, and I'm literally going to call the whole series No Justice, No Peace. It's going last several weeks, and you should come. They were on to something with that particular chant. But they didn't know what justice or peace really were. And they didn't know that justice meant to follow all of God's commands in all of life. And they didn't know that peace didn't just mean the opposite of a riot. It meant everything that God promises in obedience. Now this is where the definition of that word for peace in the Old Testament means a lot. Okay. Now some of you guys know this already, so don't roll your eyes back in your head. Listen to me, this is important. Peace, when we think peace, what do we think? We think this weird Eastern inner Hamshamalaka kind of peace, you know what I'm talking? Like That's what we think when we think of peace. We think of we think of no anxiety, we think of no stress. we think of "I empty my mind." That's stupid, okay? That's not peace. That's not, that's not what the Bible teaches peace really is, okay? What peace, by the scriptures is really taught well, first off, the, the Hebrew word is Shalom. Okay, you've heard that word before, Shalom. And and if you notice something in in Hebrew cultures and in Jewish cultures, shalom is is actually like a a greeting, like a hello and goodbye. If you've ever got to hang out with some some Jewish folks before, you've probably heard that tossed around a little bit among their family and among other people that they maybe share the same faith with. Shalom, you know, they're saying hello, they're saying goodbye. And it doesn't just mean peace. See, what, what, what it actually means is what happens in obedience. Okay, listen to me, follow close. If you look up the definition of shalom in any good Hebrew lexicon, oh, that's like a Hebrew dictionary for Hebrew words, ancient Hebrew words. If you look up the definition of shalom, it's not going to say just peace there. It's going to say ultimate human flourishing. <laughs> that's a lot more than just peace. That's that's not ham shamalaka, right? Like that's not that's not what that is. It's it's the idea of what God just promised to His people at the beginning of Leviticus 26. That's what shalom is. Shalom is not just ham shamalaka, peace. Shalom is is ultimate blessings of God, human flourishing. And that's why the source of peace before the fall was, was the lack of sin. Our obedience to God's laws, His commands. You see? And that's why To be a peacemaker doesn't mean I find my inner rest. That means to be a peacemaker means to be a worker of God's justice in the world. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? To be a peacemaker, to make peace, means to take God's laws his commands, his decrees, his instructions, and bring them down into every fiber and facet of your life and the world around you to the degree that you have influence. That's what it means. You want peace in your life? That's what peace means. You want real, satisfying, deep peace. And peace is not... Oh, Oh, Sorry, hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just finish this section, and then we'll get to the really fun part, Okay. The world also has this other problem. They believe that peace is simply the absence of conflict. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about? I just, I just, I, I've heard this expression. I'm just, I'm just looking for my peace. And what they mean is, basically, they mean they're tired of fighting, right? I just feel I'm fighting all the time. I don't want to fight anymore. So the, that's that's a worldly definition of the word peace, right? I'm just, I just want, I just want some peace and quiet. And what they really mean is, I want some quiet and quiet. That's what they mean whenever they say that, okay? But that's, that's not what we're chasing. We're chasing real peace, shalom peace, ultimate human flourishing. We're not just chasing the absence of conflict, but in part, in part, it's true. In part, okay? It's true. But in order for us to have peace, actual peace, listen, conflict is actually required. But well, listen to me again. In order to have peace, I see some of y'all are like, man, this dude's lost his mind. No, I'm dead serious. Listen, in order for you to have peace, actual peace, real peace, conflict is actually a requirement of it. It means, first off, obviously, um, you have to deal with yourself, okay? You, you, have to, you have to enter into conflict, first off, with you, Right? I don't want to follow God's laws in all of life. I want to be left alone. Get over it. Amen? You want peace? You want real peace? Shalom peace? Ultimate human flourishing promised in Leviticus chapter 26? Is that what you want? Yes. You don't want that cheap, fake, Quiet and quiet, peace and quiet, ham shamalaka nonsense that's shallow. You want to know why it's never enough? I just feel like I can never get enough rest. I feel like I could never have enough quiet. I feel like I'm never satisfied. I feel like any time I'm just, I never get to take a break because you're looking for the wrong satisfaction. Real peace. And I'm not saying don't ever take a vacation. Don't jump there, okay? That's not an application of this sermon. Real peace requires conflict first with yourself. You need to repent. You've sinned against the Lord. you failed to keep his laws. you snapped at the kids, you sinned against your children, you sinned against the Lord. you need to confess and repent. you failed to tithe, you've been stealing from the Lord. you need to confess and repent. you've, you've been slacking off at work. You've been stealing from your employer. You need to confess and repent. You see what I'm saying? Who's the first thing you need to deal with? And what's that? Conflict. But from that obedience, what does Leviticus chapter 26 promise you? Ultimate human flourishing. Real peace. Real peace. I'm just so anxious. Are you following Jesus? Nine times out of ten, I'm going to say you're not. I just, I feel so stressed out all the time. Well, is it a good stress or a bad stress? A little bit of stress is actually good for you. We won't get into that right now. Here's the thing. What we do is we pretend that we have no actual conflict with God. And that's, that's a fake Peace. We have to change. And all that means is we agree with God that we are rebelling against Him when we sin. Every sin that you commit is you running up a little flag of rebellion against the Lord. It's you hoisting up your, I don't know, Jolly Roger or something and saying, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to follow you, Jesus. I'm in charge of myself. I'm my own nation. Okay, well, good luck with that. Never ends well. And then as the Lord begins to Discipline those because He loves you and He disciplines those whom He loves and as the Lord begins to discipline you and chastise you and remove peace, ultimate human flourishing from your life and, and He calls you back and you repent and He restores you again. Now, we repent. Repentance means we enter into conflict with ourselves and we bring ourselves into alignment with what God has commanded. In other words, we, we cancel our war with God. We, we exit the conflict with Him. We repent and we follow Him. And the same thing goes with the way that we interact with others around us. But we have the same temptation, in other words. We are we're silent. We, we pretend. Let me think about another way to say this. We, we pretend that there is no real conflict in the world around us, between the world around us and God. But the world around us is starving for this. As I read through the judgment passages in Leviticus, to the tail end of Leviticus, that second batch of passages in Leviticus 26, didn't it almost sound like we were talking about our country? Didn't it almost sound like I was just reading the judgments that are going on around us right now? I mean, we're not eating our children yet, but we sure are killing a lot of them. It sounds the same. And it's because we've rebelled against God. We've entered into conflict with Him. We need to resolve that. We need to destroy our conflict with God, repent, and follow Him. Enter into conflict with yourself and bring yourself into alignment with what God has commanded. We repent and confess, and then we instruct the world around us to do that as well. You see, it's it's the next concentric circle, right? You got family, you teach your family you got employees within your purview, you teach your employees within your purview. you got influence in the world around you, you use your influence in the world around you to exert the truths of Scripture and let the Lord sort them out where He would sort them out to be. We can't be silent. We can't pretend that there is no conflict between God and the world that we are in. We need to repent of our lack of witness to the world and enter into conflict with the world rather than with God. You see? See, we've convinced ourselves of this Hamshamalaka, no, no drama piece lie, and, and we refuse to engage in conflict with the world around us. Who does that put you in conflict? If you refuse to be God's witnesses in the world, who are you actually in conflict with? With God. Do you see? You are not without conflict. You've just pointed it at Jesus. We got to repent. We repent of our lack of witness to the world and we enter into conflict with the world rather than with God. And then what happens? What happens? Somebody might repent. <laughs> right? Why? Because, because the Bible teaches us that if we proclaim God's truth, then he, the seed gets sown and, and depending on the soil that it lands in, it, it might grow. You don't know. Right? You don't know if that's good soil. You don't know. You don't know if it's going to be rocky soil, or if it's too shallow, or if it's going to be scorched by the earth, or taken away by the birds, or if it's going to be good soil. You don't know! So throw the seed. Throw it. Say what's true. Some of that conflict, according to the parable of the sower, some of that conflict that you enter into the world with will result in people following Jesus. It will. There are... I'll just say it. All of you are here because somebody loved you enough to enter into conflict with you over the gospel. Every single one of you. Maybe it was when you were three and the gospel application was the rod to your butt. You know, I don't know. Might have been that. For some of you, it was later on in life when you were 20, 30, 18, whatever. Whatever. But all of you are here because someone loved you enough to enter into conflict with you with regards to the teaching of Scripture. So to make peace, shalom peace, means so much more than just rest. It means that we stop pretending that nothing is wrong. And we proclaim what God says is true in the world and we watch Him work And bring about what? Ultimate human flourishing. That's how it works. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace means a lot more than just rest. It means blessedness. It means flourishing. It means wholeness. It means completeness. So to make peace, means that we must end our conflict with God stop rebelling against him stop deciding you know better stop choosing this weird eastern quiet peace nonsense that's not peace at all and at least not the way the bible defines it and let us lead the world around us and ourselves and everyone within our purview into literally ultimate human flourishing that's what we're chasing i mean the promise is it's right there it's right there It's right there. Don't we want what is best for the world around us? Then we bring all of God's laws into the world. We enter into conflict with the world so that we can have true peace. Do you see? If you want real peace to be a peacemaker... That means that you bring God's truth into the world. You bring it into yourself and you follow Him in all of life and you encourage those around you to do the same. Stop rebelling against Him. Repent of your sins. Confess to Him your failures and trust Jesus. Because it's by Jesus' death on a cross that God made peace with you. It was Jesus' literally dying to his personal preferences in order for you to be reconciled, in order for you to have peace with God. Do you see that? What, what was the prayer in Gethsemane? Father, not my will, but yours be done. Father, if this cup could just pass from me, If this death on a cross could just not have to happen, but not my will, but yours be done. That's Jesus laying down his, this is why the prayer in Gethsemane is so important. It's Jesus laying down his life and his personal preference so that you may have ultimate human flourishing, so that you may have peace, so that you may have peace with God. That's it. And if we refuse it because we just want general peace in our life, you have bought the counterfeit. Do you get it? You've bought the cheap Dollar Tree imitation. It's not real. It's fake peace. I don't want that. I want ultimate human flourishing. That's what I want. I want blessed beyond compare. I want cups running over. I want the witness of this church to be such a bright, extravagant light to the world around us that people can't help but come pouring in the doors and say, what is happening? And it starts there. You want to be a son of God? To receive His inheritance, His true, full inheritance? Stop buying the Dollar General cheap Replacement peace and go for the real stuff, the true peace. Blessed are the peace makers. Make peace. Which is, isn't that funny? Isn't that how the devil works? Is he changes our definition of words and he tricks us, doesn't he? He tricks us into thinking that peace means just the absence of conflict. And while that is, yeah, a small portion of it, that's not the whole thing. Not the whole thing at all. To make peace, to be a peacemaker, to make the world around us have peace with God means we enter into conflict with ourselves and the world in order to proclaim that truth to them that they may receive it and believe and walk and follow Jesus, that they may have true peace. So, do it. Start with yourself. Enter into conflict with yourself first. Take the log out of your eye first. Amen? Go for it. Pull that sucker out. And that passage doesn't say, oh, you got a log in your eye so you can't do anything else. That's not what it says. It says take that log out and now go get to work. Any sphere of influence you have, maybe the next layer out for you is your family. Family, we worship the Lord here. I know we haven't been worshiping the Lord for the last little while, but I repent. And now we worship the Lord here. We're reading the Bible every day. We're singing songs every day. We're following the Lord in all of life. And whenever we discipline our children, we do so and we lead our children in confession of their sins to the Lord and to others whom they've sinned against because that's what God says to do and I want peace in this house. You see, you start there. Maybe it's your family that's the next concentric circle. We love one another. We love Him. We serve Him and we serve one another and we honor God in all that we do. Maybe it starts, I know some of us like, oh, Pastor Stewart, my kids are old now. I haven't done this this whole time. I don't know how, can I, how do I even start? You just start. You just start. You just start. You, you could probably start by doing something as simple as being like, hey kids, listen, we haven't been doing this. We haven't been following the Lord in all of life. We're sorry. We repent. We start now. Amen. Boom. And then you roll. That's it. It's not, it's not hard, right? That's the thing about confession. All the hard stuff is getting over your ego and your pride before you do it. That's the hard part. Maybe it starts with you confessing your shortcomings here first. Do it. Then do it. Confess them. And then make peace. Make peace. Lead your family in the righteousness of the Lord. And then maybe you you make peace at work. Maybe you, you own a business. Or maybe you, I don't know, you manage some employees. Or, or maybe you are the guy who uh, tries to help people not chop their fingers off at Ganyay. I don't know. Like, whatever your job is. But there, there's a way for you to just say, hey. Guys, I believe in Jesus. We're following the Lord. And I'm bringing that work into all the corners of my life. Here we go. And then you do it. You work with joy. And then what does the Lord do? He promises to bring peace. Real peace. Real peace. And then if the Lord blesses, because what does the Bible say? If you're faithful with little, He'll give you much, right? And then if the Lord blesses, and one day I pray that He would. That he would bless us and that he would give us influence in the civil sphere. Now, granted, I, I don't think we're ready for that yet. Straight up. Because I, I look out there in the civil sphere and I'm like, I don't, I don't think we've got it yet. Man, I hope we could one day, though. I hope we could. Maybe that'll be our kids. That'd be cool. Mayor Abel. That'd be great. Let's go. I, his, his slogan, he is able. I got it figured out already. I'm going to start making his campaign posters. I'm joking. Y'all know I'm joking. But if the Lord blesses and one day we do have opportunity to do so in the public sphere, then we do it. Why? Because God says he'll bring peace. He will bless and flourish all of our people, including the people of our town. If he gives us opportunity, then we do it. We make peace. And then we keep doing it. We keep fighting for what? For peace. You see, you see, isn't that confusing? Because we think peace just means HamShamallah, quiet inner peace. No. Peace means conflict. Peace requires conflict. And we keep doing it. We keep fighting for peace and we keep proclaiming and practicing and repenting again and, again and again and again and again and again and again. And one day the Bible promises that we will have it. It promises. It promises. It says, it says that one day you will have it. So get to work. And in all of this work, what does it say? You will be blessed. Right? See, that's, that is one of the biggest pieces that I think we must draw, drill down deeply into our hearts because we miss it otherwise. Happy are the peacemakers, for they are sons of God. Right? Happy are the peacemakers. In other words, peacemakers don't have a, that's not the disposition of a peacemaker, right? A peacemaker is, is joyful. Wouldn't that just, what, what if we just had a, a just reputation of just a bunch of jolly troublemakers? That sounds great, <laughs> you know? Just so happy all the time, and they keep telling us to repent. I try to hate them, <laughs> but I just can't do it. That'd be great. That's... <laughs> happy are the peacemakers. Happy are them. You don't sit there on your couch like a big curmudgeon. Or they would just get it right. That's not, that's not the disposition of a, of a true gospel preaching, God-loving Christian. Rebukes are required. Don't get me wrong. But our disposition to the world around us should be one of joy. And sometimes stiff rebukes are required. But I wish our default could be happy. In all of this work, you are blessed. Happy because you are fulfilling your purpose. The mission you were sent to accomplish, to make peace, to bring about total human flourishing, to repent of your sins, to make disciples, to teach the nations, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to build Christ's kingdom. You were made for this. Don't you? I mean, you feel that, right? You were made for this. You were literally built to be God's peacemaker. And we've chosen selfishly our own inner fake peace instead of God's peace. And if you want peace, you must fight for it. And peace is to be fought for, made according to God's words, and you were made to do it. And one day you will have it. Do you want to just listen to the promise? Let's you just listen. Let me just read you the promise from Isaiah 11. Because this is what God says will happen if we trust Him. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion will be fattened together. And a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat the straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's that sound like? That's shalom. That's ultimate human flourishing. No death. No sin, no pain, no suffering. And the promise of Isaiah is one day that will happen. Total and complete flourishing will be present all over the world. But it has to be made. And if you are a son of God, Then it is you who are sent to make it. May we be peacemakers. Let's pray.